You're listening to the Book Talk Today podcast, a podcast that inspires readers to obtain valuable insights to inform, educate, and improve lives. My name is Orn Abdi. I'm an avid reader, best known for the creation of the One Minute Book Review community, and I'm sitting down with authors to delve deeper into the books they have written to uncover the story behind the story. Hello, Book Talk Today family, and welcome back to another episode of the Book Talk Today podcast. My name is Orn, I am your host, and in today's episode, we are joined by Joe Zamet Lucia. Joe is an entrepreneur, investor, leadership advisor, and commentator. He is an investor and non-exec director in entrepreneurial ventures and advises senior businesses and institutional leaders on leadership in contemporary culture. And today we are discussing his new book, The New Political Capitalism, How Businesses and Societies Can Thrive in a Deeply Politicised World. This book will be out on the 3rd of February. And we had a great conversation about what the new political capitalism is, the relationship between politics and business, and the differences between the current financialized capitalism that has been around since around the 1980s, and what Joe deems the new political capitalism. It was a great conversation, and as a student of politics, it was one that I was thoroughly, thoroughly interested in. Just a quick note, about halfway through the podcast, my audio got a bit cut out and it got a bit fuzzy, just so you know, about, I think, half an hour through the podcast, so just so you're aware, and if you're listening, um, I was aware of that. But it was a great conversation, and one that I'm looking forward to share with all of you. If you haven't subscribed already, please do to the podcast. Every single week, we release a podcast with an author to discuss the ideas and principles inside of their book. We have some great authors lined up already for the beginning quarter of 2022. So to make sure that you don't miss out on any of those podcasts, please do subscribe whether you're listening to this on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or any other streaming service. It would be much appreciated if you do subscribe. If you're looking for a way to support this channel for a low-cost way, I definitely recommend subscribing to our YouTube channel. That is the most cost-effective and free way that you can support this channel in any way. If you are listening to this on Spotify, Apple, please do go over to our YouTube channel at Book Talk Today and subscribe over there. Without further ado, here is the podcast with Joe. Enjoy. Joe, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Nice to be here. Thank you very much. This subject is a very interesting one for me as a student of politics, having studied politics at university some time ago, uh, but still being very interested in the subject. Uh, I think this one is one that caught my eye, the subject and also the book itself. And I think politics, economics, history, people like to see them as independent subjects. But I think the more that you study them, the more you realize that they're intertwined and they are inseparable. Um, and so is politics and business. I think they, through time, they've been inseparable. And I think at this moment, uh, it's definitely the case as well. So before we get into some of the elements and ideas within the book itself, I think it'd be great for you just to define what uh, new political uh, capitalism is. So... You know, capitalism has been successful and resilient because it has changed continually over time. Uh, there's no one form of capitalism. Uh, it's flexible and adaptable. Uh, that's one of its strengths, makes it resilient. And, you know, we've had in medieval times, we've had feudalism, we've had you know, industrial capitalism, we've had mercantilist capitalism, we've had We've had um, uh, consumer capitalism, and now we're in a phase uh, that that has been 
called financialized capitalism, where essentially, unless something can be reduced to money, to pounds, shillings and pence, um, it doesn't count. Um, and and that's, that's, you know, had its time. And I think we're now realizing the problems with that, uh, the issues that that has raised in, uh, alongside the advantages. Um, and the political world has also changed dramatically in the last decade or two. People are becoming much more politicized, much more politically aware. Uh, politics is becoming much more polarized. Um, it's becoming, you know, people have increasingly uh, strong views about the sort of society we should live in, which is what politics is about. Um, and business is is not immune from that. Um, so I think what, what's happening now is that political considerations are starting to have started now for some time, and in my view it will increase, have started to drive um, our economy more and more and more. You know, people used to talk about the political economy. They have always realized that economics is essentially a branch of politics. There is no economic analysis or economic decision that does not have a big political aspect. Um, and that has been forgotten in the last, you know, whatever it is, 30, 50 years. Um, and, you know, making money, profits and margins, shareholder value, all these things took center stage. Now we realize that that has its issues and that we don't want to accept certain things simply because they add shareholder value. You know, we, we don't mm. want to destroy our climate and our environment simply as a way of adding shareholder, putting money in shareholders' pockets, um, mm. and lots of other issues, which I'm sure we'll cover. So, so I think capitalism is, its, it is in its next transformational stage, which I call political capitalism. Mm. And to me... Political capitalism is when political issues, um, political defined in the broadest sense rather than party political, uh, mm -hmm. political defined as the kind of society we want to live in, uh, where political issues will increasingly in drive how business is done. Um, and for this to work, politics and the political system, the commercial system, the economic system have to relearn how to work together. Um, uh, because that used to be the case, um, but we've kind of forgotten it. And the number of business people I hear who says, if politics would only keep out of our way so that we can do business, which is a kind of total nonsense. <laughs> um, what what were some of the factors that contributed to that separation? I think that, um, you know, from the 1980s onwards, um, commerce and, and um, making money, to put it in its crudest form, uh, became the only thing that mattered. 
um, and everything else was secondary. So, so you know, that drove this separation. And as I said, everything became financialized. You know, the right. only thing that mattered, the only things that mattered are what you could put on a spreadsheet with a pound sign next to them. Um, and that was a phase and it, and it, it provided advantages, but it's over. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's no longer viable in today's world. Is that, was that the economic policies by Tha Thatcher and Reagan then? That sort of the neoliberalist view? Yeah. So the neoliberal ideas, you know, emerged 30, 40 years before the Thatcher era. You know, the, the Montpellier Society with a, a bunch of very bright, competent uh, individuals um, put out that framework of how we think about life, you know, 30 or 40 years before Thatcher and Reagan. But Thatcher and Reagan were creatures of their time. Um, mm -hmm. And politicians and, 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 you know, leaders do two things. One is they follow the culture but they also lead it. Um, so it, it was of that time. It was of that era. Um, and, you know, it was, it was an era where individualism became important, where uh, the idea of people standing on their own two feet and looking after themselves with less support from, you know, the state or anybody else became of its time and that had advantages it encouraged a lot of entrepreneurialism uh, it encouraged a a, a, a a revolution really in in our economy and how we think about this it encouraged a pullback of the state and a an increase in private enterprise um, you know people were quite energized. Some people, let's put it that way, <laughs> were quite energized by that period of time. Uh, and it had its advantages. <clears throat> but like all systems, they run out of road. Um, mm -hmm. And the world changes. You know, since that time, we've had a great financial crash. Um, we now have a pandemic. Um, you know, we've, we've realized that that um, the kind of individualist mentality drives some people uh, to do better and to do more, but leaves a bunch mm. of other people behind. So all these things are now becoming visible to a degree that they can no longer be ignored. Mm, um, definitely. And, and, and it's time, you know, it's a, a new system will emerge. I remember being my first day in accounting school. Uh, my first graduate role was in finance and my first day in accounting school, they said the first rule of accounting is to maximize shareholder wealth. And I remember sitting there thinking, that doesn't really make very much sense. We're all doing all this work and it's all going to the top X amount of people at the top of the organization. It just seemed a bit strange to me. So I know in the book you said that that is an outdated model. Um, do you believe that to be the case still? Yes, I, 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 I believe that it's outdated now. And it's not just the, sh the maximizing shareholder value idea that is outdated, but the idea of maximizing just one thing is a nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you, know, you know, in all our lives, we have to balance multiple things. <laughs> um, you know, 
you balance your work life with your with your family life you 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 know you balance how much you spend with how much you earn you 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 always you balance your leisure with other things you, you know, it, life is a is a is a is about finding a balance of different objectives that we're all trying to reach so the idea that business is about maximizing one thing is just ridiculous. <laughs> um, you know, be it shareholder value or anything else. Um, yeah, yeah. It, if you do that, you drive, you, you, know, you ignore so many things. Um, you ignore, and, and you know, business talks about creating shareholder value. Well, sure, they might create some shareholder value, but some of the value that's being passed on to shareholders is not actually created. It's being taken out of somewhere else, like the environment, like our social cohesion, and transferred, you know, converted into money uh, for shareholders. So, mm -hmm. so um, it's, it's not creation of value, it's transfer of value. Some of it, of course, there is, there is value creation too. Um, but I think what has changed is that during this period of financialized capitalism, we only defined value financially. Mm. Now we're realizing, you know, which is something that you know, as human beings we've always realized, that you know, value is is a bunch of things. <laughs> yeah. um, it's not just financial value. So how do we, so we're redefining what value we expect business to deliver. Uh, it's going to be much broader. It's going to be much more of a balance of things. And it's all going, and, and much of it is going to be driven by our political views. I think an interesting change is I think the transparency between the general population and business leaders, because they see, for instance, that the, the life that they live or the riches that they have and how they, they live their lives. Like an interesting thing, you said the transfer of wealth from like the way I see it is uh, every company has their own like externalities or, or negative externalities that they produce. And instead of that going towards fixing that, whether it be, you know, investment into what corporate responsibility, whatever it might be, it's basically just going to the shareholders. So that transfer isn't going into society. And I think people are realizing that they're realizing that all of these negative consequences of businesses, whether it be environmental or social, should be going back into the places where it, it's supposed to, but instead it's going straight to that shareholder. Um, and I think that's where a lot of the the discontent for the general population is 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 seen. Yes, I think that's right. One one qualification I would make is let's not think of shareholders as just the super wealthy, um, because anybody who has a pension scheme is a shareholder. Um, so you know, most a, a significant proportion of the population depends on that shareholder value for their retirement and and for everything else so i think we shouldn't equate shareholders with the super wealthy you know to an extent even though it's kind of three four steps removed we're all shareholders and we all depend on that uh, in our current system anyway uh, we all depend on that 
for our retirement income, for our pensions, etc., etc., etc. I think where it goes, where it it goes a bit askew, is when the focus is so strongly on pushing up the stock prices in the short term. And and there are two big issues there. <laughs> One is that um, in financialized capitalism, you end up trying to, uh, or, or, or management and leadership, get sucked into trying to push up and maintain stock prices um, through financial engineering rather than through industrial development. So, you know, we get companies like Boeing who decide to spend hundreds and hundreds of millions buying back their stock in order to push up the stock price and then cut corners in the development of their air, airline, aircraft with, loss, with consequent loss of life. That, mm. That's the kind of perverse outcomes of having this narrow focus on pushing up the stock price. And all that has been made much, much worse by linking executive pay to stock prices. Um, because, you know, then all your incentives are pushing you in that particular direction. Um, and, and, if you have narrow incentives like that, not just in this case, but in, in, in general, if you have narrowly focused incentives like that, you get perverse outcomes and people get driven by their incentives to do strange things. Did that, did that practice happen about the same time of this financialized capitalism? Yes. Did that practice start at exactly the same time? Yes. So it's the, the idea of linking stock price, linking executive pay to stock prices uh, is a kind of 1980s, 90s idea. It's very recent. Okay. Um, I, I mean, at least for people my age, it seems recent. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, um, but we've sort of, you know, everybody seems to believe that it was always like that. Mm. Um, but it's very recent. I mean, until the 1980s, in the United States, stock buybacks were illegal. They were not allowed. Um, okay. Most people don't know that, don't don't realize that these are, you know, relatively new things that are symptoms or or at least, or outcomes. Let's put it that way, of the system of financialized capitalism. What was the reason why it was legalized then? Well, it was uh, under the Reagan administration, um, okay. and it was part of the culture the neoliberal financialized capitalism culture of the time. So anything okay. that, you know, that encouraged the creation, supposed creation of shareholder value um, was seen as a positive thing at that time. And, you know, people lobbied for it. It was part of the culture. It was part of how people saw the world at that time. Um, so it, you know, got through. <laughs> yeah, I think that was a, a thread throughout your book as well as the understanding that an ideology or, or the way or practice is, is only as good as the time that it's in. 
I think yeah. you you said that you know politics is just how people are feeling at that moment, not what someone's belief is. So to to understand the differences between politics and business, what are some of the core differences, and why do one side not understand the other, and why why can't they understand each other's sort of motives and goals? Well, politics and business are fundamentally different cultures, um, uh, and 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 you know reasonably so. So <clears throat> you know. Uh, politics is is about broad society which has to accommodate multiple views and multiple interests so it's about you know the spirit of the times but it's also about bringing people along with you or as many people a coalition of people along with you um, as you do things or as you suggest things or as you implement policies, you have to bring the population or at least enough of the population along with you um, uh, to make things happen and, frankly, to get elected. <laughs> um, so so it's, about, it's about, you know, you're working with multiple a multiplicity of societal views with everybody wanting different things everybody having different interests and you're trying to cajole that along and and lead people forward you know bring them along with you um and in politics you have you 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 you're expected to be responsible for everything you know, for my children's education, for the state of the roads, for how much I can earn, you know, even for the weather, maybe, you know, you have responsibility for everything. Business, on the other hand, is a totally different culture. Um, first of all, business is, to put it crassly, <laughs> um, business is a dictatorship. Okay, the CEO says, jump, and everybody says how high. There's no cajoling to be done. Um, business has much narrower focus. So when you go to work, you have a contract with your employer, you do a job, they pay you for it, you go home. Okay, it's a very narrow focus. Um, you're not, you know, the business leader is not expected to look after your children's education. He's not expected to look after the National Health Service. He's not expected to look after, you know, every, everything else. It's a very much narrower, simpler focus. And the desired outcomes are a bit, e are somewhat easier to define. Okay, we have to make a profit. We have to keep people happy. Um, and we have to grow our business much, much easier easier although it's complex enough in big corporations especially but it's 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 nothing like the political culture so these are two fundamentally different cultures different structures different ways of thinking um and it's not surprising that you know it's difficult to find common ways of thinking between the two um you know, it should not come as a surprise. What are some of those common ways of thinking, though? Because you gave an interesting example in the book saying that there 
when someone, for instance, is like a revolutionary leader or they're part of a revolutionary party, they almost have this entre entrepreneurial spirit. They, they, they're going in to try and shake up the environment. So that is, you know, even in the political realm, that might be, like I said, like a revolutionary leader. And in the business world, that might be like a new tech startup. So like, what are some of the similarities between the two environments? So, um, so you know, both environments are forward-looking. Um, both environments are saying, you know, you're saying, you know, how do we want to change things for the future? Um, you know, how do we want to grow our business? How do we want to change how people do things? What services can we offer, etc.? So both environments are looking to, you know, to put it grandly, <laughs> to change the world. <laughs> um, <laughs> Within business, of course, business is not homogeneous. There's no such thing as business. There are different yeah, yeah. businesses, different people, different business people. So the entrepreneurial spirit is comes from um, people, you know, young entrepreneurs or old entrepreneurs or whatever, but people saying, you know, I have a different vision of how all this could work. You know, so I'm going out and I'm going to try and change it. I'm going to try and do things. You know, Tesla, you know, rev has revolutionized essentially the car market. Um, entrepreneurs think like that. Entrepreneurial leaders, whether they're polit in politics or in business, think like that. They think, you know, I want to revolutionize. I want to change the world. And this is how I'm going to do it. Of course, doing it in politics is a little bit of a different um, task than doing it in business. Mm. Um, bureaucracies, on the other hand, be they political bureaucracies or business bureaucracies, which is what you get in very large companies, are about stability. They're about, you know, slow evolution and maintaining the status quo with mm you know, improvements around the edges. Um, and we need both of those. You know, we can't have revolution only. <laughs> we need stability. <laughs> um, and it's the interaction of those two. So, so there are lots of parallels between the business world and the political world. You know, there are business entrepreneurs who want to shake things up, um, and there are business leaders who want to maintain stability and keep improving things bit by bit because we need that. Uh, and we need all those sorts of companies. Likewise, there are political leaders who value stability and steady as she goes, like Angela Merkel, for instance, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, whose whole political career was defined by no change. There is no alternative. You know, I'm in charge. I'm Muti, the mother. You guys, you know, just keep doing your thing and nothing to worry about. Okay. That's one style of political leadership. Uh, then there are the political leaders who say, you know, I'm going to change the world here. <laughs> um, and, you know, this is just not working. Um, and you can call them, if you like, the political equivalents of entrepreneurs. Mm. Um and most of them fail because revolution is difficult, just like most entrepreneurs fail. Hmm. Um, 
So, and is is that is that the reason why there's very few business leaders that transfer into politics? Well, well, I think that gets back to our previous conversation about the culture. Um, you know, when you've become a business leader and you're used essentially to giving orders <laughs> and saying, "This is what we're going to do. We've worked this out. Now let's go do it." Uh, and where everybody, you know, most most senior business leaders are approached by people with a sense of deference. You know, it's it's you know they're respected, etc., yeah. etc., et and rightly so. It's a lot of curtsying, a lot of curtsying towards and, them. Yes, etc. Exactly. <laughs> that that's one environment. If you're if you're used to that environment and have had your life in that environment, and then you go into politics. Where as soon as you say something, everybody disagrees. Um, as soon as you know you open your mouth, you're everybody's favorite punch bag. You know, you, you know, all where where you open the newspapers and all you see is what an what, how idiotic the government is. You know how stupid they are. That's a very difficult. Jump to make, you know, emotionally and and practically. Um, mm. So it's very hard because you're jumping from kind of one culture and environment and 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 how your ego is seen um, to something that's really fundamentally different. Um, so it's a very, very, very difficult thing to do, and you know some have been successful and and some have not. I think uh, one that comes to mind, I think recently, is obviously Donald Trump. I think you gave the example in the book about him, and I think a lot of people look to him as sort of like the business leader that tried to try to do it, but obviously brought a whole uh, ideology from the business world into into that office. Yes. So so Donald Trump went, you know, first of all. Um, let, let's be clear, it, it's not an easy thing to be elected president of the United States. I know, he did, he, he did well just so, to get elected, yes, to be so, fair. So He's that's, done very so well. that's a major achievement. Yeah. Um, but he brought his business mindset to the office in that, you know, anybody who disagreed with me, I'm going to fire. Um, this is how we're going to do it and let's get on with it. Um, and I know the answers to everything. And, you know, if you contradict me, you must be wrong and I must get rid of you or whatever, or you must be a cheat or whatever. And, 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 you know, in business, that kind of hard man, um, approach, uh, is not only works, but to some extent is necessary to drive business forward. Um, um, and it's an, and, and, but in a democracy, then it's much more difficult to make that work. Um, of course, if you're Putin, then that's fine. One of my questions I wanted to ask then, what is the differences in relationship between politics and business in different political environments? So in sort of Western democracy, and you mentioned Putin, which is essentially a dictatorship with oligarchy, I guess. Um, and then you have China, which is obviously communist. So how does the relationship between government and business change based on those different viewpoints because i think at the edges they are different but i think there are some glaring similarities yes well you know uh, to an extent um 
business and politics have to develop a kind of symbiotic relationship. Uh, they're interdependent and intertwined. Uh, yeah. So they have to find ways of working together. And different cultures uh, find different ways of working together. Um, and that not only depends on the political system. You, you mentioned China versus Western democracies, so fundamentally different political system. But even within the same political systems, they vary. So the relationship between politics and business in Germany or in France is very different from the relationship between politics and business, say, in the Netherlands and the United, in the UK and the mm. US. Uh, those are cultural um, and, and there's variation. Um, I mean, if you take China, essentially business is by and large seen as an arm of the state. Mm. So the state controls everything. And business is a tool for the development of China and the, and the development of state power and the projection of state power. Um, yes. So, so business is subservient to a large extent. Um, and we've seen recently how heads get chopped off when they rise above the parapet too much and when they get too much power that threatens the state. Uh, so that's one system. Um, and, and, you know, its advantages, if you like, are that you can mobilize the whole country, the whole business community and the whole economy to push for the national interest and to project your power. Um, you know, the, the Russian system or the oligarchic system, if you like, is a bit different in that, you know, the, the power is concentrated um, in a few people. So there is the government that has power and there are those close to the government, the inner circle that have power and wealth um, <clears throat> and everybody else matters significantly less. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's a different system. Um, in, in democracies, it's somewhat more complicated because democracy is messy. <laughs> uh, democracy mm. is messy and inefficient. That's the price we pay for freedom. Um, so, you know, there's no equilibrium it's as, as a friend told me, it's like the three-bodied problem in physics. There's no equilibrium in the relationship between business and politics in a democracy. It's constantly changing depending on the times, depending on the priorities, depending on how much political capital business has built or how much political capital it has spent. <laughs> um, yeah. Depends on the system. So, you know, the German system with much closer relationships uh, between uh, much more collaborative relationships between business and the political system, which, as we have seen with the Wirecard and the Volkswagen scandals, can descend into essentially collusion um, if it gets too close. So, you know, politics has to both nurture business and help business succeed but also has to maintain enough distance 
to hold business to account. Mm. And finding that balance is, you know, something we all just sort of try to muddle along over time and improve and get better, we hope. One of the things that I wanted to ask was there's been this sort of retreat to nationalism globally. There have been different countries that are pushing this political agenda where they want to move everything inwards and they want to do sort of their own country produces everything and they want to close their borders to immigrants and, and, and this type of stuff. So what are some of the destructive effects of nationalism and how does that affect the relationship between government and, and business? Yes. Well, let's let's see, maybe talk a little bit about why this is happening. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> um, this is a, a reaction, a backlash, if you like, to the era where we glorified everything that was to, had to do with globalization. Um, now, there's nothing wrong with globalization. It's not a bad thing. But as with everything, it's got its ups, its advantages and disadvantages. And if taken too far, you get a backlash. Um, so... While globalization and exchange of views and, and exchange of cultural ideas and all these sorts of things and international trade, this has all produced positives, um, it's also produced negatives. Um, so we used to talk, as I mentioned earlier, about the political economy. Um, where And what globalization has done is it has ruptured that concept because politics has remained local and national, whereas commerce has transcended that so and, and become much more transnational. Um, so you've, you've started to, we've started to develop a system where there was uh, an erosion of political accountability of commercial practices, um, where companies could play one government off against the other. This forced countries to make, you know, strange and somewhat perverse policy decisions because business would threaten to move to some other place if they didn't get what they wanted, etc., etc. So there was this rupture of the political economy. Um, and that was always going to be unsustainable. Um, you can't have a commercial world that is um, not aligned with the political world, with, 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 with our political systems. Um, so what we're seeing now is a realization that this doesn't work uh, or that maybe not, maybe that's putting it too strongly. Or that it's gone too mm. far, and it's 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 causing issues. Uh, now we get a pendulum swing, where people say this has gone too far. So now we're going to produce everything in my own village. Okay, well that's obviously nonsensical as well. <laughs> um, but these these are normal pendulum swings that um, you know eventually get us to some kind of adjustment. Don't you think that climate, uh, don't you think that climate change, sorry to interrupt you, but don't you think that climate change has had a massive impact on that belief? 
Well, you know, climate change is a big issue that, quite frankly, we don't really know how to deal with. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> um, evident. <laughs> uh, you know, in spite of all the rhetoric and in spite of everybody saying, you know, here's a one, you know, here's your 10 point plan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, we really don't know how to deal with it. Um, and everybody keeps talking about, well, climate change is a global problem. We have to deal with it globally, et cetera, et cetera. There's some truth to that. But the reality is that the actions to be taken still have to be taken by national governments. So, you know, there's obviously a need for coordination. There's obviously a need for collaboration. There's obviously a need for us to learn from each other and to try and work together. But actions are still going to be national. Um, and each nation, as if you like the largest working political unit that we know of so far, um, uh, each nation will have to take the, it, the actions that are politically viable and possible in its own mm. system. Um, so yes, it's a global problem, uh, but the solutions are going to be national, hopefully coordinated, hopefully with some degree of collaboration, hopefully going in the same direction, but there is no global solution. We don't yet have a global monarch who can say, this is what everybody's going to do. Okay, so so I think know, I think so that's what talk, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are pushing for with their with their space companies. Yes, absolutely, and of course, them being business people thinking in yeah. a business way, they think you know I can run this. You know, I you know just let me do it, and I can run the world. <laughs> um, so, which is fine, and we need people like that. Um, but things like climate change. You know, there are global problems. We have to talk to each other. We have to collaborate. But at the end of the day, actions are going to be national because that that is that is the political system. So do you, do you think with climate change, too many countries are thinking about social, sorry, no, are thinking about international cooperation on the subject instead of actually putting in policies at the national level? Well, I think they're doing both. Um, I think, you know, we see we have all these cops where people get together and everybody puts forward ideas. Um, and, you know, the, the, the outcomes of these cops are totally predictable in that, you know, the people who run them say, yeah, we've achieved a great deal. And the activists say it's all hopeless and you've done yeah. nothing and it's all a failure. You know, we know that yeah. that's what's going to happen. So, you know, let's not get into that. <laughs> <laughs> so at the end of the day, you get people together. You, you try and push in a particular direction, but then people have to go home and they have to implement these things within what is viable in their own societies, in their own political systems, in their own state of economic development. Um, and, you know, there's collaboration in terms of, you know, some rich countries can afford to subsidize less wealthy countries to help them along. Uh, so there's that sort of cooperation. We can transfer technology. You know, we can produce solar power, solar panels cheaper so that people can buy them. So th there is all this, all this stuff. But at the end of the day, climate policies will be implemented nationally. 
One of the other things I wanted to ask you is this idea of countries going into other countries um, through foreign direct investment and changing how their relationship with the government and and businesses. I think China and Africa is a very interesting one because when uh, a country goes into another country, uh, their their selling point perhaps is you know we're going to increase the wealth of the citizen, the general GDP per capita. But with Africa, it's very interesting because it's actually decreased since the investment has increased from China. So what are some of the, the pitfalls of seeing foreign direct investment as a, as a positive thing? And because I think a lot of people perhaps who don't know about it might think that, you know, a country going like China, investing a lot of money into infrastructure is a good thing, but might not have a look about the issues about, you know, that wealth is just being transferred back perhaps into China or even just to the political leaders. As you know, there's a lot of controversy at the moment about the conditions underlying those loans, um, whether the terms were reasonable or not. You know, at the end of the day, both parties signed up to them. So, you know, we can't point fingers here. Everybody signed on the dotted line. and, you know, people learn from their mistakes. <laughs> so, so, you know, China provided financing for these things. They had certain conditions attached to those financing, to that financing, which some people would consider unusual conditions, but they were signed up to. Um, now, some of those loans are coming home to roost and they're coming home to roost on both sides. So they're coming home to roost in the in the country that took the loan, the African countries that took the loan, finding that the return on that investment may not be as great as they had hoped, and they're going to have difficulty repaying the loans. Um, <clears throat> from the Chinese side, some of the Chinese banks are realizing that these countries may not be able to repay their loans and they're going to default, which is a problem. <laughs> um, so, you know, some of these things are going to go bad uh, in various different ways. Uh, but, you know, loans do. Um, so, so, so that's what's happening there. Um, you know, whether it was wise for some African countries to take out so much debt and spend so much money on infrastructure... And whether there was a social and economic return for that country, whether the social and economic return that was thought would arise from those investments was, you know, reasonable or fantastical, I don't know. Um, but, But basically, you know, it's not worked out as people had hoped. Foreign direct investment, I think, is... To me, anyway, what I understand by that term is different, is that is when corporations uh, agree terms under which they will invest in a particular country to run their mm. business. You know, so, you know, Shell is going to drill mm. somewhere and, and that's a foreign direct mm. investment. That's happening in, Chi- in Africa, though, as well, from Chinese companies as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. There's Chinese companies uh, doing foreign direct investment in China. Um, <clears throat> as we discussed earlier, <clears throat> the, 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 you know, when you think of China <clears throat> and what China's doing and try to interpret it with Western yeah. eyes and, and with, with Western ways of thinking, 
you run into yeah. trouble because <clears throat> you know the 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 delineation between what is government um uh what is what is state involvement and what is corporate real private enterprise involvement in china is is much more fuzzy um so <clears throat> you know is china really making foreign direct investments which are commercial or is this a projection of power is this a state investment is this a state in you know it, it's more it's, it, it's a different you have to think differently than how we used to thinking in the yeah, west it, i think it's different to that financialized capitalism um and it's much more right. you know the term is you know soft power uh, i think that's very much the case with with that type of investment yes. i think that's in the same way that i don't know you know saudi arabian you know backed uh, banks and public and financial institutions are buying football clubs in that type of way it's yes. sort of the soft power through financial means yes exactly it's soft power sometimes it's what i call sharp power uh in that you know you can make it very clear yeah <laughs> that 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 this is what you need and and, and whatever yeah. and you know talking about football clubs and things you know some of it is fun and vanity yeah just because they can i think you know you yeah. know one oh, one okay. qatari does it and then the they an arab an arab one a saudi arabian one has to do one right after it <laughs> just, right. you know, that's okay you, you know, you've got you've got fine. the money why not yeah it's fine i mean personally i can't get very excited by who owns a football club but if i were a football fan maybe i uh, would think i'm not it. either but i i like thinking about it from a political point of view because obviously when yes. a com- when a when a you know a, a government backed uh, financial institution is buying a football club in a different country it's it's always an interesting proposition because i think now everyone knows that it is you know it could be from vanity but i i do think there is an element of sort of the political element to it yes there's there's maybe projection of soft power um and and there's there's there are cultural issues and and and, and all sorts of things that's quite different i think from china wielding its financial power to for political ends mm-hmm. yeah, for explicit political ends um you know so you know if you if you criticize um what's happening in xinjiang then your financing gets cut off you know that, that's quite a different level of political projection of political mm-hmm. power than buying a football yeah. club. Yeah. The nature the nature of it is definitely is definitely different and the way that they wield it is very yes. different. That's for sure. Um just to yes. sort of wrap up our conversation um I know that a, a large you know a subset of our of our listener base are, are between 18 to 34 and I think from reading your book one of the underlying questions is w- what can each one of us do to navigate this sort of world of new political capitalism whether it be from an entrepreneur point of view or even as a citizen and a voter so what are some of the things that you think listeners should be aware of and 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 some of their maybe not concerns but things that they should be thinking about when when living in this new political capitalism yes so so to uh, <clears throat> to kind of frame that a little bit um when i sent um the book uh to my 
banker and he read it, uh, he came back to me and asked me a question. And he said, you know, this is a fundamental, fundamentally different way of thinking about business and what business is about. He said, do you think that the existing generation of business leaders can make that change? Or do you think we have to wait for a new generation of business leaders to arise um, in order for this to happen and for, for people to, to move in this direction? Um, of course, I don't have an answer to that question because business leaders, business leaders of each generation are not homogeneous. Yes. So, so, you know, some of them, no doubt, will yeah. change. And some of them who, like me, um, were brought up in the mindset of the 1980s and 90s might find it difficult to, to, to change. Um, but your listeners are, if you like, the new generation of business leaders. Um, and I think they have the opportunity to start thinking about business in a very different way, uh, which is more in tune with the times and certainly more in tune with what the times will be when they're reaching chief executive position. <laughs> um, uh, so, so what I would say to them is if you've just come out of business school and business school has told you that business is all about um, uh, creating shareholder value, forget it okay ignore it it's it's they're they're behind the times um so if you're thinking of joining a corporation uh joining a company for a job um if you're thinking of becoming a brand manager if you're thinking of starting your own business ask yourself some fundamentally different questions ask yourself what contribution to our social order is my business going to make? You know, how does my business and how I run my business or how does, you know, do I want to join this business versus that business? Um, how does what this business does and more and maybe more importantly, how it does it make the world a better place? You know, how does it contribute to um, us all living a better life? Now, okay, if you're in a business, I don't want to pick particular businesses, but if you're in a business that, you know, not all businesses will transform the world <laughs> in terms of the products and services yes. they offer. But in terms of how they behave and how they run their business, they have a very big impact. So think of it like a brand and think of, you know, what is the political, um, and by political I mean the contribution to society, um, what is the political image of this brand? You know, if I were to, if I, if I were thinking of applying for a job with XYZ Corporation, and I walked out into the streets and asked people, what do you think of XYZ Corporation um, in terms of, you know, how it 
contributes to the world, what answers am I likely to get? Um, these are the questions I think that young people should be asking themselves when they're thinking about joining this company or that company or setting up their own mm. business. Not has the stock price gone up in the last six months. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, you know that that is important, and it's it's not to be ignored, but it's not center stage. I don't I don't know uh, anyone that that I've been friends with or known that has ever thought. Do you know what? I wonder whether the stock price has increased. <laughs> no, I I agree. Uh, what I mean, what I mean, what I mean is, you know, there's there's the financialized yeah. way. Yes. of looking at it yes, you know um and and think about what incentives you know what are your conditions of employment going to be what are you going to be incentivized to do do you want to join a company that says well if you can push up our profits we don't really care what you do as long mm. as you do it um or do you want to join a company that takes a broader view that balances multiple things and even some of the big names you know um take google you know we, none of us can live without google it seems these days but again you know how are they going to use their ai technology you know how is that going to make the world better it no doubt will in yeah. some ways but what are the pitfalls yeah. etc the other thing i think they should realize is that employees have more power um so you know increasingly employees especially younger employees in the age group that you mentioned are standing up to management and saying you know we don't accept that you're going to do this with the business um you know we don't accept that you're going to sell ai technology to potential terrorists or or for uh, surveillance purposes or whatever you know the dynamics are changing um and and these are the sorts of considerations that people should be thinking about when they're thinking about joining a company to work for or starting their own business yes. what what is what is the political overlay of that brand yes yeah, so the question you ask yourself about like, if you were to go to let's like, say a family gathering or tell your friends that you're going to go work there what would be their immediate reaction because I had that yes. when I was applying to my graduate schemes and there was a certain defense contractor that I applied to. And I thought to myself, I probably don't want to work here, not only from just a human rights point of view, uh, with what they're actually going to do with the things that I'm going to help produce, uh, but also just from a point of view of, you know, telling someone like my grandparent or something, you know, um, that, you know, we're working, I'm going to be working here. So yeah, I definitely think it's just a, an exercise in trying to understand yourself first, like what you stand yes. for and, and your personal values, and then just projecting exactly. that into into how you live your life and, and how you choose your 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 the, the the corporation that you work for, or like you said, a, a job or a company that you're looking to start. Definitely. So yes, exactly. And I think more these sorts of considerations are becoming much more important. You know, there was a time again, and if you look back to the 80s and 90s, that you know when a lot of my friends were you know changing jobs or looking for jobs at the time the only thing anybody talked about was what was the size of the pay packet and what was the size of the bonus it's funny it's funny you say that because that's like the only question that m my 
sort of the older generations in my family and extended family ask when you get a new job it's it's never about you know what's the position you're doing you know what do they do how do you feel about it which is the questions that you know me and my friends talk about it's like how do you feel about working there and all these types of things um it's always like how much they paying you (laughs) that's like the first question yes (laughs) the first question is how much (laughs) they paying you are you getting a bonus and are they paying for some training those are the three questions yes and and if i may what you've just outlined there of a generation that first asks you what are they paying you and the new generation that's asking you about how do you feel about working there is a perfect example of the shift between financialized capitalism and political capitalism. Perfect example. Well, I think that's a perfect way to, to finish the conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much, Joe, for coming on the podcast and, and discussing your book, uh, The New Political Capitalism. Um, where's the best place for individuals to find you? Where is perhaps a website or any social media that you have? Yes, so there will be a website up hopefully in the next week or okay. two called newpoliticalcapitalism.com. Excellent. Um, <clears throat> uh, so that's, I think, going to be the best place to look. Um, we're fine, trying to get it to work at the moment. It's in development. Uh, and and I'm, I'm very interested in engaging in conversation. So the website will have articles and things and this podcast and things on it. But I'd also like people to contribute their own views and articles that I will publish on the website on this subject. Mm, definitely. So if anyone has any questions or wants to you know, learn a bit more about it, then definitely head over to the website and you can read the read the articles, you know, once they're once they're up and running. Yes, Perfect. absolutely. Thank you, Joe, for taking uh, the time. The other, the other way to contact me is I also uh, am part of a uh, public policy think tank called Radix, um, and they can look on <clears throat> they can look at uh, radixthinktank.org to see what we do there, and they can contact me through there. Perfect. Also. I'll put the links to them both in the in the description below to make it easy for individuals to find you. Excellent. Perfect. Thank you, Joe. Thank you very much. That's been very enjoyable. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I really hope that you took away some amazing points from the discussion with Joe and that you learned something about what the new political capitalism is and its turn and change from financialized capital. You can purchase Joe's book using the link in the description below. The book will be out on the 3rd of February, so only in a week or so's time. And you can use that using the link below. You can also check out his website at Radix, which is the think tank that he mentioned at the end of our conversation. And I don't think his new website is currently live but once it is i'll put the link in the description below if you haven't already please do subscribe to the channel whether you're listening to this on youtube spotify or apple uh, for new podcasts that come out every week with authors to discuss their books and the ideas and principles inside of them as i mentioned at the beginning of this podcast subscribing to our youtube channel is the most cost effective uh, well it's free uh, way that you can support this channel uh, for the coming episodes and if you find some value in this podcast that'll be very appreciated if you do subscribe to our podcast on youtube thank you again for listening to this podcast and i'll see you in the next episode